The frozen chosen might be alive. <laughs> I just can't believe it. Man. In that first hour, there was just a few toes tapping. And uh, all heaven broke loose this hour. It was good. Good, good, good. I, it was my mom's favorite song, I think. And I remember when we lived in Southern California, we'd, we lived by Victory Boulevard. And so whenever we were on a certain freeway and you drive by Victory Boulevard, she would just start singing and Anyway, it just makes me think of her. If she was here today, she would have been clapping louder than anybody. Her hair would have been bigger than anybody's. And she would have been happy about victory in Jesus. Thankfully, she's in heaven now. So, probably with big hair. I don't know. <laughs> All right, enough of that. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the sure victory that is, out, that is ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you so much that we are not people who have hope and hope. Thank you that we're not people who hope in themselves, but according to your mercy and your, your grace, our hope is in Christ. And we're grateful that, that his work on earth is done, that he has provided a sure redemption and that he's done everything necessary for us to have absolute victory. And we're grateful for that. We're grateful that we will surely enter into that hope by the power of the Spirit. We're also rejoicing today at the fact that Jesus right now is at your right hand and he is there for us and he is claiming us as his own and he is interceding on our behalf. Thank you that our righteousness is not our own, but it's his credited to us. And it's a delight. It's a great joy for us to be claimed by him because of his great mercy shown to us. Thank you for your kindness Allow us to understand your great salvation even better this morning, uh, that it might even further enliven the joy in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. For the last 200 years, uh, a favorite song in the church has been the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I think it's one of my favorites. I've... Uh, sang it or sung it, whichever one you prefer, for uh, the last 20-some years of my life. Whenever uh, I know that song is being played, I, I'm excited. I want to sing that, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And yet there's something about that song that I really, really don't like. I, uh, I'm about ready to spoil it for all of you if I haven't already spoiled it in the past. Um, I want to keep singing it. I love to sing it, but there's something about it that's a dampener. There's something about that song that is... Uh, troubling uh, and sobering. And it's that lyric that says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Ever since I learned that the author of the hymn, Robert Hall, denied the faith, that lyric is stirring in a, in a bad sense to me. He was prone to wonder. He was prone to leave the God he professed to love. The reality is, in one way or another, we all have those kinds of tendencies. Apart from God's grace, we're going to be prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we profess to love, and, and some more than others. But it's a real problem in our lives. For some, it's because they're suffering greatly and it causes them to want to walk away and think God's promises aren't true in Christ. And, and for others, it's not the suffering, it's the opposite, it's the prosperity. And they have made it on their own, they don't need Christ anymore, and so they're prone to wonder. Or you could say it's persecution for some, it's uh, praise for others. It's a big problem. The longer I'm a Christian, the more people I know who've professed faith and walked away. Some close, dear friends. If you've been a Christian very long at all, you've experienced this. People who profess faith and they no longer profess faith. Sometimes leaders. Sometimes people who've made a big difference in your life. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I'm so thankful that the Bible addresses this kind of issue. I'm so thankful that God cares for us and He wants us to understand and He wants us to not go there. And He helps us to not go there by reminding us about how great Jesus Christ is. 
This morning, we're not going to be in Luke. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Hebrews 2. If maybe you're just brand new to the Bible, maybe you've never opened one before, I don't know, and we just gave you one this morning. Uh, I just looked. It's page 860 in that um, black and white ESV Bible. You can turn to page 860 to this letter known as Hebrews. Not long ago, I was preaching somewhere else. I was preaching on Hebrews 2. It gave me an opportunity to restudy it and rethink it through and meditate on themes in Hebrews 2. And when I left that city and went to the airport, I thought, I want to preach Hebrews 2 at Omaha Bible Church. Now, I've preached Hebrews 2 before here. Um, but it was a burden and it was fresh. And I thought, first opportunity I get to preach Hebrews 2, I'm going to do it. And then... Luke has so much emphasis on Jesus' humanity and why he needed to be a human. And so we've been talking about that in recent days. Hebrews does the same thing. They're very complementary. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, by the way, other than God inspired a human writer. Some even think it was Luke, by the way. There's no proof for that. But they, they emphasize a lot of the same things. So because there's a parallel, it makes me want to preach Hebrews too today. But even more so, it's because of the peril, the real peril of this business of getting distracted from Jesus and thinking about our problems and thinking about our circumstances and thinking about our suffering or thinking about our prosperity and forgetting and we start drifting. That's the bigger reason. I want us to be in Hebrews chapter 2 today. Lord willing, next week we'll be back and we'll look at the complimentary Luke in the gospel according to Luke next week. Really, the way it's divided, the first verse ends up giving us really the, the, the exhortation, the, the punch, if you will, and then the rest of the book explains why the first verse is so important, or the, the rest of the chapter does. Uh, maybe just one more thing before we jump in. So there really isn't much of an outline this morning. There doesn't need to be one. Uh, but I, I want you to know what I'm going to try to do, feeble, incapable as I am. I'm going to try to mimic what I think is the right tone in Hebrews 2. It's pastoral, it's in a sermon kind of format, and so there's this caring, shepherding, uh, earnestness about it, big-heartedness about it, but there's also this firm, sober, we got to talk about judgment, emphasis in it, and I'm going to try, you can pray that I, that, I, that I try to capture both of those. There's an urgent kind of message that might feel a little pointed and a little bit abrasive at times, but at the same time, knowing that it's coming from a pastor, shepherd, caring for sheep, it's genuine. That's the sense I get from Hebrews 2, and I'm going to do my best with God's help to try to, try to mimic that. So let's jump right in, and let's jump right into the strong statement of Hebrews 2.1, where it says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Worth reading again. Therefore, in light of what he said in chapter 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Well, what have we heard? What is the it? What we have heard in chapter 1, and if you haven't heard it, I'll just give you the, the big picture reminder. In chapter 1, we hear in the opening verses that God, this God who is a revealing God, a communicating God, a, a God who speaks, He has revealed Himself in many different ways over the course of human history. And yet it says in these last days, in these climactic days, in these final days, in these punchline days, if you will, He's spoken to us through His Son. He's spoken to us through His Son. And here, He says, we must therefore pay much closer attention. If God talks, we should pay attention. There's only one true God, the eternal God. And if He's a speaking God, I would want to listen. And, and He's spoken in many ways, and we should listen. But then, ratcheting things up a hundredfold... If this God has a son and he's revealed himself in his son, not through prophets, we would want to listen most of all because that would be the high point. That would be central. And that is exactly what has happened. And that would call for us, as it says in verse 1, paying much closer attention. I love the imagery that he uses there. Uh, he uses a, a ship kind of image, a nautical image, when he uses much, uh, excuse me, um, 
pay closer attention. Also, lest we drift. Both of those uh, are used sometimes of ships. You've got to focus on the harbor if you're the captain of the ship. You've got to focus on that harbor for safety. Because if you don't pay much closer attention to that harbor, what's going to end up happening is you're going to run up on the rocks. You're going to have, as Paul would say in 1 Timothy, shipwreck faith. It's going to crash. It's going to be destructive. And he says here, lest we drift. You've got to focus. And he's talking to talk about Christ. Because if you don't focus, there's, there's drifting away. You're drifting off course. And he's calling us to focus on Christ lest we drift off course. It seems the church at large, it seems we as Christians uh, have, have a, a severe case of gospel ADD. We have gospel deficit disorder. Jesus knew that. That's why he said, do this in remembrance of me till I come. Preach Christ. All these different kinds of warnings. So your tendency and my tendency, apart from God's grace and apart from the help of the Spirit and the help of the church and reminders like this, oh yes, we talk about Jesus and we profess faith in Jesus. Well, he's writing to professing Christians. And we're so easily, 101 different ways, 1,001 different ways, millions of different ways to lose our focus. And pastorally, caringly, passionately, He's saying we must pay much closer attention. Don't assume the gospel. Don't say I checked that box. I already know that. That will lead to damnable drift. We must pay much closer attention, he says. And then what he does is he gets into the why. Why Jesus is worthy. Why Jesus is everything. Why we would focus on Jesus ultimately first and foremost. And so he then starts unpacking it. Once he's giving us that, 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 that impactful warning. And now he's going to start pointing out the greatness of Christ. And also the greatness of judgment apart from Christ. So let's look at verse 2 now. For since the message declared by angels. That would seem to be the law. God gave it to human beings. But mediated through angels, proved to be reliable, it was true, and every transgression or violation or breaking of or disobedience received a just or a fair or a righteous retribution, a payment, how shall we, we professing Christians, escape, context, escape what? Divine retribution. How shall we escape divine retribution if we, professing Christians, neglect such a great salvation? That's meant to be a harsh question because we know the answer. History says God holds true to his promises. Read redemptive history. Read, read, read history. Read scriptural history. And, and you know what? When you don't do what God's law says, it doesn't work out so good for you. Understatement, understatement, understatement. We know this about God. He hasn't mumbled. You know, in his law, it isn't mumble in his commands. He's revealed himself, right? And there's been consequences, just retribution, where there's violation of his law. And now he says, all right, everybody, professing Christians. And now we've got the whole story, the full story. Now we know where all of that law was aiming toward. It's in Christ Jesus. And here we've gained uh, all of this extra information. And it's glorious and it makes sense to us. And we've experienced life in the church. And he says... How much more severe would it be for us if we turned our back on God's revelation? Mm -hmm. Don't believe the absolute ignorance that says God was nicer in the Old Testament than he is in the New. (laughs) He's the same God, obviously. But actually... If the writer of the Hebrews was here, he would let you know that while he's the same God, judgment is more severe in the new because revelation is greater. Isn't that that what's implied there? Isn't that what that means in verses 2 and 3? It most certainly is what that means. It's worse. 
It's more severe because it's, we're talking about his son. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, some of you might be thinking right about now, I would be if I were you. At least somewhere in my mind, I'd, I'd be thinking, well, yeah, I know this is in the Bible, but we, we know that true Christians persevere. We know Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to perfect it. Uh, we know John 10, we know John chapter 6, and Jesus will lose none of them that really belong to him. And we know 1 John 2, 19, those who went out from us were never really of us, and we can cross our theological T's and dot our theological I's, and, and so we can kind of say, you know what, why, why is he getting so worked up about this? How about because he's a pastor? How about because even though these, those things are true, This is true too. And when you know people who are drifting, and maybe you're drifting, the right response is not, those who are not from us were never really of us. The right response is not, well, apparently you're not a real Christian. Time will show. Even if that's theologically true, and I would go to the wall for those things. The Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles reflecting the heart of the Father cares. And He uses human beings like you and like me and like the writer to the Hebrews to, to urge people to say, don't go there. Don't turn from Christ. Don't wonder. Don't make shipwreck of the faith. And I want to be that way this morning. I want you to be that way. Whether it's tending to the issues of your own heart or tending to the issues of the people that you care about. Those other theological truths are not for our convenience so we don't ever have to care about people. We do care. And so whether you're, you're really in that struggle now or you will be someday, I want to say what you need is to remember Christ. It's crucial and critical that you remember Christ. The way to not get yourself in that place is to remember Christ and who He really is. And to equip you then to help in your sphere of influence to help people remember Christ. It's, it's the key to the prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And He's going to show us how great Jesus really is. Remind us of how great He really is. He's the legitimate Savior. He's the authentic Savior. He's the one. Verse 3 goes on to say, it, referring to salvation, referring to the gospel, it was declared at first by the Lord. Where did this message come from? Some crazy guy in the woods somewhere that made all this stuff up? No, it says here, notice how legitimate it is. It was declared at first by the Lord, the divine son, the eternal preexistent one himself. And it was attested to us by those who heard. So there are eyewitnesses. I like to call them earwitnesses. Verse four, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I mean, any amount of iffiness is, is, is off the table. You know, if you have to think, well, you know what, my, my life is hard and, and this is difficult or my life is wonderful and everything's great and, and do I really need God and all of this or do I really need the gospel? And is it really true anyway? And he's saying, let me line up for you the witnesses. Uh, let's start with <clears throat> Jesus. Um, let's talk about eyewitnesses. Let's talk about extraordinary, miraculous things. Things that don't happen every day because they're associated with the extraordinary and they're associated with Jesus. And not only that, let's talk about 
God's plan and purpose, obviously, that becomes significant and gifts of the Holy Spirit. He's lining up these points of significance that this is true, this is right, this is legitimate, this is not something that somebody just made up somewhere and started talking nonsense because of a dream or something like that. And then what he does is fascinating. He takes up the issue of Jesus' weakness. Apparently that was where things were being assaulted. Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, yeah, Jesus. You know what? I saw him. Didn't look like much to me. Oh, Jesus, the one that they uh, crucified. Huh. Some savior he was. Jesus. Yeah, I saw him. You know what? Flesh and blood. He was a human being. And here you are. You're willing to suffer for that? You're willing to keep professing to be a Christian for, for, for your association with a human being who was crucified? Trying to undermine confidence in Christ as Savior. And the author to Hebrews basically says, thank you so much for that easy pitch. <laughs> it's the one I've been waiting for all day long. Because I wanted to talk to you about the humanity of Jesus. And this is where I start thinking about Luke and the, and the parallels and the humanity of Jesus and why it's so crucial. And that's what this whole chapter really ends up stressing uh, is his humanity and why you and why I need him to be a human. And that really should bolster our trust, not diminish our trust. Look at verse 5, what it says there. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Maybe there's bragging about angels and angelic revelations and all these kinds of things. And, and he's going to talk about how Jesus is better than everyone and anyone. And notice what he's going on to develop in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. He's going to quote Psalm 8. And here we go. Verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? He's quoting Psalm 8. Just one technical point, and that would be, in some of your translations, uh, in verse 6, it capitalizes son of man. Some of your translations, it's lowercase son of man. In the Greek text, there's not a differentiation. Okay, So the translators have to make a decision. They have to either go lowercase, or they have to go uppercase. The conservative route, oftentimes, is just to leave it lowercase, and then you have to determine the meaning based upon the context. But some of your translations have chosen to make it capital. Some have left it small. And I'm going to suggest to you at this point, at this point in what he's arguing, uh, we should just leave it and not capitalize it. I'm preaching from the English Standard Version this morning. They left it lowercase. He's quoting Psalm 8. Psalm 8 in its context is talking about human beings, first and foremost. Son of man, meaning human being. So let's, let's read it that way for now. Lowercase. And, and in Psalm 8, the, the thing is, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? God, this is, and there's a Hebrew parallelism. So he's saying the same thing. Man or son of man. God, it's amazing you care for us, human beings. We're in awe that you've made us in your image. This is astounding, God. That's the Psalm 8 kind of verbiage. Now let's keep going in Hebrews chapter 2, still quoting Psalm 8 in verse 7 of Hebrews 2. So many numbers. Verse 7 of Hebrews 2. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. It's hard to tell where the shift happens because he's going to shift to Jesus. But I'm going to ask you, at least for now, just to, to, to read it up until that point in light of its original text in, in Psalm 8, talking about human beings. It's amazing how God made us. He, he made us different than Fido. He made us different than ferrets. Give me another F, I don't know. <laughs> he, he, he made us different from all of creation. He set a crown, if you will, on Adam and Eve. And he said, have dominion over the earth. Have sovereignty over the earth is what he's saying. 
belittle sovereigns. He's the ultimate sovereign king, but he's called Adam and Eve to, to act like God in the sense to have rulership over. They're unique. They're different than all of the other creatures. Wow. God made humans important. And now where he's going to go is he's going to expand and he's going to talk about Jesus' humanity. And we're going to get excited about that because if we're reading our Bibles, like people who know a thing or two about the Bible, like maybe we've read the first three chapters of Genesis, we're biblically literate. And even if you're not, I'm just asking you to play along for now. For reading our Bibles, thinking about the big picture of what happens in the Bible, we're thinking, yes, made in the image of God, glorious, wonderful, great. God said of all of his creation, it is very good. And we know that it gets very bad very fast. And Adam drives it into the ditch. We've been talking about this a little bit in our studies of Luke in the mornings. And we've been seeing that the human race is represented by Adam. Romans chapter 5 talks about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about that. We've also been seeing that Jesus is called the, what? The last Adam. He's the second representative for the human race. He's the ultimate representative for the human race. So what Adam does to our calamity, Jesus does to our benefit. He's our representative. But here's the thing. He's a real human being and we need him to be a real human being. We need him to do and be all that Adam failed to do and be on our behalf. He's using that kind of He's building toward that. So he's talking about humanity in general in Psalm 8. But now notice things really begin to change in chapter 2, verse 8, where it goes on to say, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And somewhere right about here, he has Jesus in view. If you put your finger on verse 8 where he says everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. We're starting to have Jesus in view. I know we're starting to have Jesus in view because if you put your finger on verse 8 and then put your finger on verse 9 where it says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And now here we go, comma, what? Namely, Jesus. Ta-da! Yes! The objection that he's a human being, what kind of savior can he be? He can be the savior we need. He can be the ultimate savior because he is the ultimate human being. Please don't misunderstand, by the way. He's also God, fully God. That's just for a different sermon at a different time. But here, the objection, oh, he's just a human. The author of Hebrews says, that's right, he is. You can bet your boots he is. And you need him to be so that he can save humanity. Left nothing outside of his control, verse 8 said. Then verse 8 goes on to say, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I'll grant you that. It hasn't happened yet. We're waiting for his return. But he's expecting you and he's expecting me to know enough about the big picture of the Bible and to know enough about what happened in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to go, Ah, I get it. This makes total sense. This makes total sense. Aha! That's right. It was supposed to be subject to Adam and Eve. It wasn't. In fact, they subjected themselves to the creation. Serpent. But Jesus has everything. In subjection to him. Nothing outside of his control. He's it. First Corinthians 15.45. The last Adam. He's the one. Verse 9 says. We've already read it at the beginning. But let's look at it again. But we the believers. The ones who trust in Jesus. See him who for a little while. Was made lower than the angels. Incarnation became a human right. Namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death. So that. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Another way to take that literally, that he might taste death for everything. Like in Colossians 1.20, where he's going to reconcile 
everything because he's going to put everything back in order. And if he's the sovereign one who is over everything, that would fit the idea of our context. And you go, yes, yeah, he's the one. Why would I go away from him? He's the fulfillment. He's the one we've been waiting for since Genesis 3. I've said this before, I'll keep saying it. We need Jesus to be a human. We need him to be God too, the God-man. But we need him to be a human being or he can't be the one God promised. And so when faith here is supposedly being undermined, it actually is providing opportunity to learn that, you know what, we need a new representative and he needs to be a human being. Now, historically, we don't have, uh, historically in my Christian life, which isn't that long, 20-some years, uh, the emphasis in apologetics and things like that, defending the faith, has been on the deity of Christ. And that's been good and fitting and important. And so we talk about Jesus being fully God because sometimes that gets attacked and undermined. And so we've, I've learned that well, I think. John 1, 1, John 1, 14... But historically, it's not only the deity of Christ that's assaulted and attacked. Oftentimes, I'd, I wouldn't want to put a number on it. I don't know if it's 50-50 or what it is. But oftentimes in history, not in the last 25 years per se in America, but oftentimes in history, you have the humanity of Jesus attacked as it's being attacked here. There have been plenty of people who are fine with him being God, but not the God-man. And so I think it's been a weakness in my understanding of Christ and maybe a weakness in some of your understanding of Christ as well. Why did he need to be a human being? We're learning this morning, many of you know, he has to be a human being because in order to be the last Adam, to be our representative before God, to represent us as righteous, he's got to be one of us. Has to be. Has to be. Not only that, as we just read in verse 9, so wonderfully where he says, namely Jesus, I'm not going to hold back on this crown of glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for everything. Oh, he also has to be a human being because God doesn't die. <laughs> you know? He needs to be a human being because he needs to die an atoning, substitutionary death to take away our sins. Oh, we need him to be a human. We want him to be a human. He is. He is the great Savior. He's the one we trust in. This isn't an assault on our faith. It's a providential opportunity for us to say, Oh, yes, he died, but it wasn't defeat. It was atonement. Not to mention the fact that though he doesn't get into it here, he raised from the dead. It's wonderful. Crowned with glory and honor. Doesn't stay dead. Atonement is made. I like what one commentator said about this. Celebrating the humanness of Jesus, bound up in his temporary loss of status in order that he might restore lost humanity. I love the statement. Celebrating the humanness of Jesus. Try that on a friend this week. Ask him. We say, say we, we celebrated the humanness of Jesus at church. What? They're going to think maybe you're denying the faith. <laughs> if he were only a human, we wouldn't worship him because that would be idolatry. But he is the God man. And if we are saved, we would want to celebrate his humanness because <laughs> he loved us enough to become one of us really one of us, where he fulfilled the law, as we read recently in our study of Luke. So good. I just, I love this. And you know what I hope? I hope I don't just love this. It is, in a sense, too easy to love this without forgetting it's actually meant for us to love Christ, to worship him.
Verse 10 says, for it was fitting. It was logical. This makes sense. This fits what the Bible promises. Anything other than this wouldn't fit the the, the storyline, the plan and purpose of God dealing with human beings through Adam. And then another Adam. For it was fitting that he, in this context it would seem, in verse 10, it would be God the Father. It is fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, this planning God, this, this God who does things in a fitting way, in bringing many sons to glory, bringing many sons to redemption, that would be talking about believers, should make the founder of their salvation, obviously that's talking about Jesus, perfect through suffering. This is a fitting plan. This is a, 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 an appropriate plan. If he's going to save us who are suffering, he's going to use the suffering Savior to save us who are suffering. I do love it, by the way. The founder, if you have a King James translation this morning, I think it translates it captain. It's just a great image. The captain, maybe in light of the, the nautical imagery earlier on too, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. He's the one. He's the one we're trusting. It's fitting that he would redeem sons, as we're called, through the son. Now, I do want you to notice a real important statement there in verse 10, where it says at the end, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's fitting that God would make Jesus perfect through suffering. So you say, what does that mean? Well, it's obviously not talking about his deity because he can't become more perfect than he already is. It's talking about his humanity, which would fit our context. It would fit the rest of the Bible. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. I, I thought of this passage when we were in Luke 2, 40, that Jesus increased in wisdom. Hebrews 5, 8 says Jesus learned obedience because he's a human being. He's a man. He learned obedience as a man. Still, that word is somewhat troubling. When you say, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Let me help you. Put your finger, if you would, on verse 10. And then put your finger on verse 18. I so love this. <laughs> What does perfect mean? Perfect through suffering, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered. Oh, he's still talking about suffering there. There must be a clue here. Has suffered when tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Suffering when he suffered when tempted. And then in our verse, in verse 10, we also have suffering and he's made perfect. There's got to be a connection. He's talking about his temptation. I like another synonym for perfect is as tested. That would be another good one that fits Adam. Okay, so Jesus suffered to be perfect. Well, well, not that he needed to become morally perfect because he already was morally perfect, but perfect in the sense that he was tested. He went through the suffering and he came out doing the right thing on the other side. Okay, he was tempted and proved successful. He was tested and proved successful. And again, the writer here is assuming that you've at least been to a quarter of Sunday school and you know your, your Bible storyline enough to at least have made it through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Maybe a little bit more. Who else was tempted and didn't do well? The first man, Adam. Jesus is tempted and he succeeds. Fully tested. He is our ultimate representative. He did what Adam failed to do. He did what Adam refused to do. Again, 1 Corinthians calls Jesus the last Adam. And I realize I'm harping on this because we've been talking about it on Sunday morning. We've been talking about, the, talking about it in Theology for Breakfast and the men's study on Tuesday mornings. But to see how the Bible hangs together and how it fits together and to see Jesus for who he really is in Luke 
We're getting help here from Hebrews. Oh, yes, we need him to be a human being because he represents us. And unlike that first human being, he doesn't succumb to the temptation. He succeeds. And oh, by the way, at the end of our morning this morning, when we get toward the end of the passage, he's going to talk about the destruction of the devil. It's all on purpose. It's all on purpose that he's using this kind of imagery. It's wonderful. One of my former instructors said this about all of this. He lived a life of suffering, not as a private individual, but as a public representative, winning our redemption as much by his incarnation and daily obedience, as in here, as by his death and resurrection. He needed to be tested, in other words. And he passes. He passes for us. I just, I wrote in my notes here in the margin, what a Savior. I want to bust out in that song again, Victory in Jesus. See, it might be more profound than we think. Victory in Jesus. It's not victory with Jesus' help. It's victory in Jesus. He's the victor. And I trust in Him and He united Him by faith. And so I have victory in Jesus. This is not, Christianity is not a I hope so religion. It is I trust in the finished work of the last Adam religion. Let's be more technical. Who represented me as my, let's be fancy, federal head, right? Let's just flex a little bit. We can use big theological words because it's so profound that theologians do end up having to make up words to describe how great Jesus is. And it's all to make the simple point that we have victory in Jesus. Victory because of our unity with Him because He represents us. It's as if you passed. Acceptable before God. I love this. I so love this and I so love Christ because of it. Now what he does in verse 11 is he, he's, he, he talks more about this, this, this inseparability, this, if you want to use a fancy word, solidarity, this, this connection to Jesus and how good and important it is and how it should keep us on the, on the, the focused path on the gospel. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies seems to be Jesus in this context. He who makes us pure, he who makes us fit for God, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that would be believers, all have one source. We're all of one. That is why he is not ashamed to call them, the saints, the sanctified ones, believers, brothers. It's pretty interesting what he's saying there. We've learned, well, we didn't learn this morning, but in chapter 1, Jesus is called the Son. Chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 5. And here in our context, in verse 10, just before 11, we're called sons. And here, because of our connection to Jesus and because of his connection to his father, verse 11 says, Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers. And that's cool. <laughs> that's assuring. That's reason for you to not go away from Jesus. It's reason for you to keep paying attention to him. Jesus is not ashamed to call you a brother. And if, if you'd like it in, in more politically correct language, you can say sister. It's fine. He's writing in a culture where brother is going to be an esteemed position. So whether you're a man or a woman, you might actually like to be called a brother because that's the esteemed position in this culture. Jesus, surely acceptable because he passed the test before his father, is not ashamed to call you and call me family. He claims us as his own. I love the image. I want you to love the image because while there are many different ways to describe Jesus in titles, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, he's called the I Am. I mean, there's great titles for Jesus, but there is a title we often forget because somehow we think his humanity will demean him, but it shouldn't. Brother. How cool is that? He's the elder brother you never had. Trust me. 
I had a great elder brother. My brother and I are so like-minded, we don't even get along. I mean, which isn't, isn't true, but... He was nine years older than me. He taught me how to play basketball. He taught me how to do all the things that my dad was too tired to teach me. But you could have had an awful older brother or no older brother. Regardless, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. It doesn't get any better than that. How can you know you're going to heaven? How can you have such confidence? How can you be so sure? My older brother. Who, by the way, is seated at the right hand of the Father right now because he's also a priest. He claims me as his own. He's paved the way for me like older brothers should do. Victory in him. So rich and so profound and so good and so encouraging to know that if you're a Christian, Jesus is your older brother. And how about this? He's not ashamed of you. Now, in this kind of context, we've got to read between the lines a little bit, but I, I, I don't know anyone who would, would disagree that this isn't a good idea. Context is surely persecution and suffering. Is it really worth it? Is it really worth following Jesus? Because there's been a big price. Some people don't even talk to me anymore. Even the, some people are willing to say, you've brought shame to this family. We're ashamed of you. Or maybe they're not, they don't say it, but you feel it. Because you're a follower of Jesus in the biblical sense. We do know from first century that sometimes Jewish families would have funerals for those who have not yet died because they denied the faith by becoming Christians. You feel the burden of that shame. You feel how, think about it right now. This is, you know, Thanksgiving weekend. You know, oh man, I want, you know, some of grandma's pie. I, I want some of that special toffee, you know, or special, who knows what kind of weird food we eat. And there's something reminiscent about it and special and emotional and, and we're drawn toward that or maybe we don't have family members and we were spent time with a friend or something like that. There's something good. We look forward to it. And how about no invitation this year? You're a Christian. And Jesus says, I'm not ashamed of you. He's the one that matters. He's the one that matters. So very practical and so very personal and pastoral. We have sonship in the Son. And He's never ashamed to call us brothers. What a great Savior Jesus is. His opinion is the one that really matters. And then he uses, some, some th uh, he uses three Old Testament statements. We might combine two of them. Let's keep things moving. He's going to quote Psalm 22, and then he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 8. But emphasizing this even further in Psalm 22, 22, that's the one you will know because it's where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here we won't see it saying that. Verse 12 says, I, speaking, he's attributing this to Jesus. I, Jesus, will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And you're going to like that verse more than you already do once I explain a couple things. And you don't need me to explain it to you, but it might be helpful. Jesus will tell of God's name. He will tell of who God is. He'll reveal God in a personal way. Because it's his name. To my brothers, we already know who those are. Those are the sanctified ones, according to verse 11. Those are us. So he will tell of his father's personal character, his personal promises. He will tell of your name in the midst of the congregation. That's a Greek word, ekklesia, often typically translated church. I will tell of your name, God, to my brothers, Christians, in the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. I am so intrigued by that verse. 
Jesus is making this promise. This is attributed to Jesus from Psalm 22. Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. In the midst of the church, if we just take it very literally, in the midst of the church, I will tell my brothers. I will tell those I claim as my own. I will tell them about uh, uh, God and who you are in a personal, relational name sense. That is awesome. You get the idea that it's something joyous and and wonderful even because he says, I will sing of it. I'm not just going to give them the facts. I'm going to give them the good facts. I'm going to give them the personal facts. This this verse is, is, is definitely had an influence and is influencing my my understanding of church. I want it to influence your understanding of church. Jesus, in the midst of the ecclesia, in the midst of the church, telling believers in a joyous, wonderful sense, in a personal sense, singing the truth about God. I don't know exactly how all that works out. My quick shot at it is, through the Spirit that He's given to us, sometimes called the Spirit of Christ, a church service is more than a Bible study. I'm so thankful for my iPod and my iPhone, and I listen to so many sermons and Bible lectures, and I love, I'm I'm a fiend when it comes to that stuff. I love it. But I don't care how many gigabytes you have on your iPhone. Jesus isn't in your iPhone. And he's not in my iPod either. But he's here. Through his spirit. The spirit of Christ. There's something extraordinary. There's something special. This is more than just a Bible study. So I love the church. I need the church. It's where Jesus tells us about the greatness of his father. And he does it in the midst of the congregation. Now. That's an awesome thing. We're so terrified to make the Bible say more than it says about the church because sometimes professing Christians have done that. Transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and who knows what other kind of Asians. We don't want an altar in the church. Church isn't a tabernacle. Those are all right moves by thinking biblical Christians. But we dare not go so far as to say it's just a Bible study. Because then we've gone too far. And I could do iPod church. Now, think about this in its original context. And I'll hurry. Or somebody call Jimmy Johns and have him deliver I want a number four, no mayo, extra turkey, add sauce, peppers, and oregano. No mayo. Okay. I have ordered that once or twice in my life. Um, And now I just committed the preacher's sin among many sins, and that is to mention food after 12 o'clock. Man. Hang in there with me, okay? I'll I'll go fast. You've got to think of original context here, okay? So put yourself in first century Jerusalem. Let's make it Passover time when all of the hubbub is happening, all the hustle and the bustle, and it's that wonderful time of year when you see grandma and grandpa and grandchildren and aunts and uncles and cousins and long-lost relatives and, and acquaintances, and you're together there, and it's the most wonderful time of the year year, right? If you're a Jew, 
it's magnificent in all that's going on and you're over, over, overstimulated because you can smell the sacrifices and you can hear the animals, which is an anticipation of that. And not only that, you can smell the incense and you can see the priests and the temple is where God specially, uniquely meets with his people. Oh, wonderful. And somebody preached the gospel to you months before you believed in Jesus as your perfect atoning sacrifice. And all of those things now you have seen for what they really are. They were just types and shadows. Good, but they were in anticipation and now they're no longer needed. In fact, they no longer are real, even in the sense that they were before, because it's been fulfilled in Christ. And now you're not invited to the parties. And now you don't get to partake. And now you feel isolated. But yet you're around it. And what happens on Sunday morning? Somebody invites you to a church service. And they're flat. In their apartment. Somebody has an Old Testament. They've got scrolls. So they, they can read from the scrolls and... and you can sing some songs, some psalms maybe. Somebody's got some writings maybe. We've got some Pauline writings and some stuff from John, but that's all we have and, and we're going to read. And, and maybe there's 25 people there, maybe more, maybe less. You just went from smells and bells, 75 miles an hour, touch, taste, seal, fee, see, seal and fee, see and feel to nothing. And you might think it's not worth it. But you know what they don't have over there? They don't have Jesus. <laughs> because you're in the church and the church has Jesus telling his brothers and sisters about God. And so it's worth it. A million times over, it's worth it. We could certainly learn from these believers in those days. Verse 13 then says, and again, this time referring to Isaiah 8, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, also quoting Isaiah 8, behold, I and the children God has given me. Seems a little out of place until you just stop and realize Isaiah writes this. Isaiah had to trust God because he would be persecuted and people wouldn't listen to him. He had to trust God. Well, now it's applied then to Jesus. He's entrusting himself to the Father. And now we're called to do what Jesus did, which is what Isaiah did. To trust him. To trust him. So he's using that Isaiah text that would be familiar to, with an Old Testament saint to say, look, it's the same. They rejected Isaiah. Isaiah trusted God. They rejected Jesus. Jesus trusted God. And now let's take it a little bit step, a step further. You're feeling the rub. Trust God. There's more than meets the eye. Isaiah knew that. Jesus knew that. Now you need to know that. Pay much closer attention. 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's common to all humanity, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's incarnation. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now we're back to Adam imagery and what happened there with the devil, the serpent in the garden. And now it's been reversed because of Jesus. And who's your greatest foe? Who's your greatest enemy? It's death. And it's associated with what happened there in the garden. It's associated with Satan. And guess what? Jesus, through his death, defeats him. And therefore, deals with your greatest fear and your greatest problem, and it is death. Last Adam, victory through the Son. His death doesn't mean failure, it means success. 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps. 
literally, that he seizes, that he grabs onto, but he seizes, he helps, he grabs onto the offspring of Abraham, which is a way of saying believers. He's, he's holding us. If we're in him by faith, he holds us strong. Even if we feel weak and down, we trust him because he's powerful. And then it says in 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to make atonement, to satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of the people. 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I love the way 17 and 18 work. Substitutionary Savior. He didn't come to show us the way. He came to make the way and claim us as brothers. But then we do have example in 18. He was tempted and yet persevered, suffered. He's able to help us when we're tempted. And so he is a great example to us. He's a savior first and then he's an example to us as well. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, we must... Pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the great reality of salvation in Jesus Christ the Lord. We are celebrating his humanness and we are worshiping him because he's more than a human being. He's none other than the God-man. And we're delighted uh, this morning to be able to know him by faith. Use your word to strengthen weakened believers, suffering Um, challenged. Also use your word to equip believers to be able to do ministry in the lives of other people. And Lord, we're grateful to be able to come and to be here together as the body of Christ. And we're grateful for what you do in the midst of your church. And we would ask that you would continue to do great things even though we are weak. Do great things because you're great. And do it for your glory and for your honor and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.